Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 491 of the podcast. It's November 15th, 2023. Our guest today is Sarah Tilkins from GE Healthcare. You'll learn more about her in a minute. But we're going to discuss topics and lessons learned related to manufacturing and more. Um, so to learn more about Sarah and her work, look for links in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 491. Then our guest today is Sarah Tilkins. She's an experienced lean leader with a demonstrated history of working in industries, including construction and manufacturing. Um, she has a couple of different roles and, and titles. She's Senior Manager of Operational Excellence at GE Healthcare. She's a Six Sigma Black Belt, a certified coach, uh, as she describes herself also, a lifelong learner, leader, mother, and CEO and founder of her company, the KPI Lab. Sarah earned her bachelor's degree in biological sciences from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good, Mark. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited about the uh, discussion today. There's uh, there's a lot to talk about. Um, I like to ask people if I have any standard first question, it's kind of the open-ended question of, you know, tell, tell us your origin story of getting started with Lean. Was that with Six Sigma? What, I'm, I'm just always, I'd like to hear what your story is. How'd you get started? Where, why, and how? Yeah. So you alluded to my background being in biology. So I went to school for biology. Out of college, I did biomedical research. And when I was doing that, there was a segment of the organization, the diagnostic lab quality team, that was getting certified in Six Sigma. So I learned at a young age kind of what Six Sigma was. And I kind of always kept it in the back of my mind because I am a very natural picker and continuous improver. So it just fascinated me that that thing existed. And as my career evolved, um, as you alluded to, I did some time in construction. Again, I was always looking to tweak and fix process, um, but not necessarily within a framework or with a language. Um, I'm from Milwaukee, or I live in Milwaukee, and GE Healthcare is in our backyard. So I was kind of sick of being in small industries, and I was looking for a place to fit. So I decided I was going to work for GE, but my background was really weird. Um, so I went and paid for my own black belt, and I gave myself the language and the tools to speak the way that I needed to so that I could land a career at GE, and I did. Yeah. And about five years in, oh, it would be five years uh, November mm-hmm. for you. Congratulations on on that milestone. It's funny that you mentioned, you know, laboratory. And um, mm-hmm. you know, when, when I was able to first start working with some hospitals in 2005, it was actually, it was almost always in laboratory. They were early adopters, I think, of lean and healthcare for a lot of different reasons. And, and yeah, microbiology, um, I'm remembering the smells. My goodness, that is... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> lots, of, lots of weird smells. We did a lot of stuff with animals. So I still have like some PTSD around mice, but <laughs> mm-hmm. okay, <laughs> that's the research. Era. Yeah. The research side. But even something about the patient care side, it's something mm. about the plates and the cultures and everything going on. It's you know, like there are certain smells and certain types of manufacturing. And um, I've got PTSD apparently. You know? <laughs> 
let's get past that. <laughs> let's get past that. But um, mm -hmm. so I'm not surprised that you were exposed to some of that in um, laboratory work. Um, how, how did how then did you switch from that to construction? That seems like uh, that's quite the leap. Uh, I actually decided that I just wasn't a good fit in the science industry. And a lot of people told me, hey, you've got a really good personality. You should go into sales. So I just did that. So I leapt from a place of comfort to a place of total discomfort. And three months later, I got fired from my sales job because I was terrible at it. And I had no idea what I was doing. So I kind of was left trying to figure it out. Um, I ended up doing like a customer service job and then very quickly accelerated into project management. So I've always had a lot of aptitude, a lot of skill, and I learn really fast. So I kind of talk about it just took me a while to land in a place where what I had to offer was recognized and I could actually create what I was intended to create. Wow. So we kind of inadvertently ended up with a mini episode of my favorite mistake. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm glad you bounced back from that. Now you're, you, it sounds like by nature, you kind of describe you're very process oriented. I'm generalizing, but sometimes sales, it seems like can be a fairly process free zone. Was that part of the disconnect for you or mm. am I, is that an unfair generalization? I think because I actually just wasn't passionate about it at all. Um, so I think, you know, now I'm learning as I have my own company, like how to sell myself. And I am fantastic at selling ideas that I love because I think that when you love something and it comes from that place, you can't help but be contagious. I think what happened when I was younger is, again, I was going for a title or I was doing something that I thought was the right fit without actually having any alignment to who I am or considering that as part of the equation. And so I just fell flat. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you, you, you kept looking and finding, you know, that, that fit. And then, you know, coming into GE and manufacturing, uh, it sounds like there's a, a good overlap there of being able to focus on, on, on process and improvement with, I mean, imagine the, the passion for, for healthcare mm -hmm. is strong for you. Tell, tell us kind of about that transition and, you know, shifting into manufacturing for your first time. Yeah. So I learned mostly everything I know about lean when I got into manufacturing. So I was hired as a lean leader, but I didn't know any of the tools. I didn't really understand the language. I just had the knack for continuous improvement. So getting to use process in manufacturing to understand how to conceptually apply um, my way of being and improving. Like it just opened up this encyclopedia of possibility for me because it was so, you know, streamlined and easy to visualize that it, it just, again, it, it brought it together. So manufacturing was a place that I just found home and ease in being able to explore and really develop my craft. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of people still associate GE so strongly with Six Sigma. Mm -hmm. In the last five years, Larry Culp became CEO right about that same time, or maybe just before you were hired in. Um, I know he just reached his five-year anniversary of the company, the first outsider CEO. His background was at Danaher, great lean success story there. And um, yeah, it seems like there, there's, there's been this shift to, to, to lean management, lean culture. I, I'm, I'm curious, let me turn this into a question. Sorry. 
Um, what was what kind of approach did, did the GE of 2018 take to educate you about lean? Um, you know, it's interesting because they have a lot of lean academy. I mean, we have a lean academy in Hino, Japan, for example, which I had the privilege of going to in 2019. So actually going and studying the best of the best, doing standard work, doing observations, making improvements. But in the plant, really most of my learning came from my leader, who was an ex-GM, ex-Toyota employee. So I think that, you know, within GE, of course, there's the lean tools. We do a, a tremendous amount of Kaizen. In 2018, 2019, we helped at my plant to roll out tier meetings and daily management systems. So we were kind of on the forefront of bringing some of those tools into our place. But I really think, you know, whether it's Six Sigma or whether it's lean, it's still just a problem solving mindset. And I think what GE does so well is retains really exceptional leaders who are wonderful at teaching that. Again, it's not about teaching 5S. It's about teaching people how to really problem solve. And so that's how I feel like I learned just through my leaders and through good yeah. examples of what it looks like. That. That might be the that might very well be the best way to learn, like in the real work you know, with people who have that experience. And you know, it's it's an interesting difference. It's all like to me, it's all problem solving. It's all continue continuous improvement. You know, there's degrees of continuous, but there's a difference between teaching tools and focusing on projects led by experts to what you're bringing up: daily management system and, and leadership. There's 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 a different layer that that's really important. Um, I, I was going to ask also, you know, for those who don't follow GE too closely, GE Healthcare was spun off earlier this year as uh, a separate publicly traded company still retaining the GE name. It's it's um, no longer under um, Larry Culp as, as CEO, but there's still a, there's still touch points. And I was going to bring up, you know, in September, I had an opportunity to attend um, a great event that was put on by Larry Culp and GE called The Lean Mindset. So they had GE Aerospace, GE Vernova, which is the power systems business to be spun off next. And GE Healthcare, you know, was still um, participating. So there was all this talk about lean mindset. And I know you touched on this on your website, Sarah, uh, for, for the KPI lab. So I'll, I'll, I'll ask you, how do you define and describe a lean mindset? What does that mean to you? Uh, you know, again, I think it's just a way of thinking about problem solving and continuous improvement. So it is a relentless pursuit of a new possibility and of solving problems in a way that might be different or it might be old, but it's just, um, you know, leading with curiosity and applying the tools once you understand the problem that you have to solve. Yeah. And, you know, it seems like it comes back to, you know, my mindsets lend itself coaching. I mean, you, you, you can share a description of a mindset, but it seems like, again, like the application and the nuance around that mindset comes out um, in the Gemba, in, in the work. Um, you know, so I was going to ask you, you know, kind of share a little bit more about, you know, your thoughts and experiences around coaching and being coached. And you know, mm -hmm. if you have any scenarios or examples that kind of illustrate coaching somebody through a lean mindset that they might understand at first at one level, but then can understand it more deeply through coaching. 
Interesting question. Um, I think how I coach people on a lean mindset is I first start with understanding who they are and what they want. So I have found that, you know, if you learn that someone is really interested in plumbing, you're going to tailor yourself to them so that they can find that intrinsic motivation to problem solve, to learn the tools. You might take a different approach to someone who is interested in gardening. So really for me and the way that I coach, like step one is just fundamentally understanding who are you, what impact do you want to have? And then from that place, highlighting all of your superpowers and letting you pull tools and systems to you in order to solve problems the way that you know how. So it's less about saying the right way looks like this, but it's really sparking that ingenuity and innovation by saying, I have no idea what the right way is, but you can help to figure it out by using what innately makes you special. Mm. So it, it sounds like kind of repeating back. I mean, I, I hear you talking about finding a one-on-one fit. And is it fair to say like each, each coach E, I don't know if that's really a word, but each person being coached is a customer of the coach in a way. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, that's how I treat people that I work with internally and through the KPI lab is, I mean, they're, they're a client. And again, it's not my responsibility to give them the answer. You just get to kind of guide them and walk with them. So something that's been really important um, as I started uh, identifying more as a coach, or that's one of the hats that I wear, but I've had to do a lot of education with my staff on the different ways that I can show up for them. So, you know, I can teach you, right? Like I can show you what I would do and I can give you a recipe to follow if you're interested in understanding my process. And sometimes that's the right solution if you've never done it before you just want a teacher to, to show you their example, um, I can do it for you, right? If you just want to watch from the sidelines how I do it, I'll be your consultant. I will show you my process and you can take what you want from that. Or I will be your coach. And when I'm your coach, I'm neither of the other things. I'm not going to teach you. I'm not going to tell you. I am going to ask you questions that generate your own curiosity. And again, that intrinsic motivation to help you find the answer that you seek. So sometimes you need all, sometimes you need one, but it's really just offering people that there's different things that I can offer and helping them understand how to pull the version of me that they need to be successful. Yeah. And I love the way you're framing that um, uh, on push versus pull. You know, we could be pushing ideas, pushing help, as opposed to kind of creating the, the conditions where, where people can pull. So it seems like, like a coachy reaching out to you and saying, hey, Sarah, I need help with this would be an example of pull. Asking a question or sharing something with you is an example of pull. It seems like there's, there's if, if we're pushing ideas, there's a lot of potential for waste involved, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so how, how do you tap into, tell us a little bit more around trying to discover and tap into the intrinsic motivation for improvement because I, you know, I see a lot of organizations struggle where they're 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 pushing methods like you know that you brought up earlier um, tiered huddles elements of a daily management system 
how would you work with a leader to help them understand the motivation for, for why they should even start trying other than like, I have to, and I'm in trouble if I don't, how do they find that stronger intrinsic motivation that aligns with what the organization needs? Um, I, I coach a lot of executive leaders in the CI space. So I feel like I have this conversation often. And again, it comes from just the curiosity of what problem are you trying to solve? So often, you know, it, it is we have to do a daily management system or we have to do this, but it's always just, again, creating alignment back to what's going to be the impact of that change and really allowing people to visualize that future state. I think it's really interesting too. We we talked about mindset and something that I coach on a lot. Are you familiar with the thought model? No. What is that? So the thought model is like, like a coaching tool, but it's just the way that our brain works. So you have a circumstance, which creates a thought, which creates a feeling, which creates an action, and then your action generates your result. So if you are going into, I my boss told me I have to do a daily management system. That's a circumstance, right? There doesn't need to be any emotion associated with it. It's just a fact. If the thought is, well, that's not going to get anything done and that's stupid. Your feelings are going to be of frustration. The way that you are going to deliver actions and results probably aren't going to be your best work. But if you can take that circumstance, I have to do a daily management system. And the thought you have is, what an exciting opportunity to try something different or to motivate people. And again, from that place, how we feel about that thing we have to do is energized and excited and curious. And again, from that place, we're using the same tool, we're doing the same thing, but we're going to generate a really different result. So it's both like understanding the problem that we're trying to solve. And that's where some of that intrinsic motivation comes from is we have to solve problems, but how we as leaders choose to walk forward into them and with what attitude, what mindset, that's what can sometimes be the difference between winning and losing and oftentimes is. Mm -hmm. Different results from mm -hmm. a different approach. But, um, you know, that, that part of that emotional response you describe of like, oh, this, this doesn't work. It's stupid. There, there could be some past circumstance, right? Mm -hmm. So they're not just hypothesizing that this is stupid. That could have been some past experience where maybe something wasn't being um, implemented well, or maybe it wasn't connected to more intrinsic purposes and people, like if people go through the motions, of course, it's not going to work. I mean, that's almost mm -hmm. like self-fulfilling um, prophecy, but how would you coach somebody through, let's say they have, you, you have past experiences positive. They have mm -hmm. past experience and circumstances that were negative. How would you try to bring them along to even share the hypothesis that trying again, trying differently would lead to a, a better, better result? I mean, it's kind of hard to work through that. Yeah. And I think often what I would do is just um, ask where they won. Right. So like, OK, so that's an area that you haven't been successful. But tell me about something where you were really successful. Mm. Tell me about a change that you brought forward where you did win. And again, I think it reinforces that you're a capable problem solver, right? So sometimes when we're feeling in those feelings of failure, we're looking for all of the validation that this isn't going to work again. But sometimes if you shift to show me something else that did work, okay, now come back to this problem that we're trying to solve. What can you use from that 
And how can that offer you something here? And again, it's not me telling, but you'll say, oh, you're right. When I did that, I I had really good relationships with the senior leaders when I was rolling that out. And that was really critical to my success. And the last couple of times we tried to roll out DMS, we just didn't have the buy-in. So what I need to do is I need to go ensure that this framework is set in place. So it's just, and I don't know what your past success or failures look like, but it's just reminding people that it's never black and white and anything is possible if you're willing to just try again and think about it in a different way. Yeah, like you said, as a coach, you you don't know, so it's better to ask and try to draw that mm-hmm. out instead of just assuming. Right. Like, oh, so and so is cynical, and they've been, <laughs> they've been through. Instead of blaming them, like trying to draw out, I like how you frame that: trying to draw out something positive. Mm-hmm. I think there's a difference in mindset. How do we make this work? As mm-hmm. opposed to, I bet it's not going to work. And again, like that, I just that that becomes self fulfilling if someone mm-hmm. believes. Like here's you know, uh, I'm not excited about it. I'm not going to put the effort in that someone can be sort of in a way satisfied of like, well, see, I told you it didn't work. It wasn't going to work. It didn't work, but we didn't, we didn't make it work. There's that more active stance than the passive. I'm a victim of it not working. That's Mm -hmm. hard to sort through, especially if someone's, you know, a frontline leader in the middle, I might feel kind of stuck or how, how do you help them? especially as you're shifting toward a lean culture, help them believe they are more empowered than they might've felt in past circumstances. I think it's just, again, um, knowing what motivates them and what is important about empowerment and what that means. And then um, there's something called the progress principle, which is that people are actually happiest when they're making progress towards a meaningful goal. Uh So I think it's about understanding, you know, if you were empowered or if you were winning, how would you know? And actually coming up with some of those leading behavioral indicators. So if I show up every day with curiosity, if I spend the time investing in my staff, right, like cultivating that belief that lagging indicators will come. So if you're your best self, if you're leading truly with your values and you come up with a measurement system, I think that you can, you can again, get through some of that, but oftentimes it feels like we're doing the right thing, but we don't have that scale. We can step on every morning and say, yes, I lost a pound. So a lot of the work that we're doing, it takes a long time to generate transformational results. So coming up with a way to just measure the success, I think for leaders is really important. And, and, and how do we coach people through I don't know if being resilient is the right phrase to use, but, you know, you're talking about, okay, well, I'm down a pound today. I can celebrate. There are days in a weight loss journey where someone might be up 0.6 pounds. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean there's no progress. That's more a question of variation. Mm-hmm. And trying to convince somebody, you know, even if we're, we're implementing new practices at work, there might be a step back occasionally for every two steps forward. And, and, in my experience, we have to help guard against people saying, oh, see, there's a setback. I told you it wasn't going to work. Like not leaping to that kind of preordained conclusion too quickly. Can, can you think of a scenario where you had to kind of coach somebody through the slight blip where it didn't feel like progress today, even though over time it's part of the progress? Yeah. And what comes up for me when you say that um, after I had my daughter, I used Noom. It's a, it's a weight loss program and it's rooted in psychology. And one of their tricks is you have to weigh yourself every single day 
when you're behaving the way that you're supposed to behave, so you're eating right so that you can understand that your weight fluctuates, right? So it's like your baseline is fluctuation. So again, in coaching, you're just establishing that right out of the gate and you're coaching people on, you know, we're so accustomed to, if it looks this way, this is a loss. Why are you believing that thought? So it comes back to that thought model of just do the things that you know will create the results that you want. And there's the measurement system, which helps you to measure the progress. But just like any control chart, right? If you look at an individual day, of course, you're going to see variation. But if you're looking across a period of time, you're going to hopefully see the results that you're trying to generate or not. And if not, it's not a failure. It's just an opportunity to revisit what needs to change so that you can get back on track. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's powerful lessons and, and there are applications of SPC or control charts or process behavior charts um, to, to something like weight. I've heard some people that would even be labeled as experts say like, well, you, you shouldn't overreact to every day. So you should only weigh yourself weekly. I'm like, well, that's one approach, but there might be variation then at that weekly level. Um, I, I, I like maybe easier said than done. Like you were describing and coming from Noom, we can learn not to you know, get too upset about um, a daily blip. Now, probably does it make sense when we talk about you know, measurement or process, like you might measure production on an hourly basis in manufacturing because you're looking to try to drive out variation and drive consistency. Somebody weighing themselves hourly, no, probably not, probably not a good practice there because that's all kinds of different variation, intraday variation that's maybe not worth looking at. But that's where, again, it's what problem are you trying to solve? So it just always comes back there because if you're looking at something that's going to take time to change, of course, maybe it doesn't make sense to look every hour of every day. So you kind of have to build that into how you're solving a problem and what does success look like and what does done look like. And if you feel like measuring every day, I'm going to weigh myself every day. If you're getting discouraged and that doesn't work for you, Mm. who cares what my advice is? Try something different. So I think it's just that permission to always be in experimentation mode. You're always just testing a hypothesis because we don't know We just, if we remain curious instead of sure that we have the solution, I think that's what keeps us really agile and resilient as we solve problems, both in organization and as independent leaders. Yeah. Mm, Yeah, that's very well said. I agree with you totally. I I love the way you said that. So I want to ask, and this maybe kind of starts getting into the business you started, um, you know, the KPI lab and um, getting certified as a coach. You know, can you tell us about that process and, and kind of, you know, how and where you went about that? Yeah, I um, got my first taste into coaching uh, about three-ish years ago. Um, I had my daughter month one of COVID. And so I was out, I was taking care of a baby. I came back to the office, full-time mandatory worker um, in a new department because my role had switched when I was out on maternity leave. So I was trying to figure out how to be a mom, how to do this job, how to survive in a pandemic. Um, And then I got to start working with my coach and it just transformed 
so much of my life. Um, I went from worrying about what other people thought to really just like finding the power in myself to know what I thought. Uh, instead of selling, I was buying. So just really, it allowed me to sit in my power. And instead of all of the hats, just kind of find home. And I really just wanted after that experience to be able to offer that to other people. And as a person in CI, I feel like 80% of the time that we're solving problems, it's not that we don't know how to, you know, understand the problem or get to root cause. It's that it's really hard to sometimes sustain things because ultimately what you're doing is you're changing beliefs and change is really hard. And as a coach, Sometimes I have these secret questions that I can ask because, again, it allows people to be comfortable with change in in just different ways. It's just a different set of tools that I now possess that make me more effective as an agent of change and way more effective as a leader. So it's just been a fascinating journey. Um, I actually finished certification. I went through uh, Coactive as a certifying body. I finished that in August and then I got certified through the International Coaching Federation in September. So it has been a long journey, but so worth it. Yeah. You mentioned um, Coactive and then what was that other organization you mentioned? ICF is the International Coaching Federation. Um, so you mentioned Coactive. I was going to ask you like that. A little bit about you know if someone's listening and, and and they want to do the same thing like there's a lot of organizations that can train and certify you as a coach mm -hmm. what would if, if can you talk a little bit about your selection process of identifying you know who is the good fit for you yeah so there was a couple things that went into that um a my coach was coactive so obviously like we all have mentors and people that we respect a lot and their opinions can mean a lot. Um, and I received coaching from people who had gone through different programs and not to say that, you know, a coach is their program because we've always bring so much of ourselves to that. But the way that coactive coaches showed up and held space for me felt so unique um, and also the coactive curriculum is very rigorous. It's hundreds of hours of coaching. Um, it's hundreds of hours of education. And it's just this, this um, practice, right? So it's not just, it, you just really get good at understanding yourself as a coach. And that's really what I wanted to experience. And so it was the right program for me. But again, I would encourage people to play with all of the different styles. I feel like there's a lot of coactive coaches who actually go through other programs as well, just to learn a different discipline. And, you know, lean people learn Six Sigma and lean people learn Scrum and Agile. So it's, it's again, a means to an end, but it's just mm -hmm. a different language. Yeah. Yeah. And there might be parallels to a Six Sigma belt program or a lean Six Sigma belt program. There's education, there's the book learning. And then there's the application, hopefully, you know, with, with a good mentor. I mean, it was part of that program, uh, providing opportunities for to coach the coach, for you to receive coaching yep. and feedback as you're coaching others, like your yeah, project, actually, if you will. Yeah. So there's, um, when you are done with the educational portion, you uh, have to get 100 hours of coaching under your belt. 
and you have to be working with a certified coach as you go through it. So you have your coach who's helping you navigate, you know, your self-management as you're figuring out how to serve other people. Um, Also within their certification structure, you have master coaches that review your work. So I had my clients sign waivers and I would record some of our sessions and then I would review them with a coactive coach who is different than my coach. And really they were looking at technique. They were looking at how was I standing in the discipline? How was I showing up for people? So um, I love feedback. I think a lot of people in CI love feedback, but it was so powerful because oftentimes it's, oh yeah, you're, you're really good. That was super helpful. But these were trained coaches who would say, yeah, of course you're good, but here's all of the stuff that you didn't do right. So it was this really rigorous um, approach that helped us learn just how to shift our skills. And when you record yourself and when you listen to yourself back, um, I started to hear it and then I could self-correct behavior. So it was just a really good process to deepen the learning of um, you know how you need to evolve to be a different thing. Yeah. So there are you know technical methods for for lean, for coaching, for for leadership, if you will, you know, what you do, how you go about it. And then there's kind of this layer of like, well, how, how are we being, you know, so to that point, what, what are some of your thoughts on taking care of yourself as a coach or a leader so that you can, how do you help yourself so that you can better help others? Because being a leader, being a coach, doing improvement work can be draining, in different ways, how, how, how do you, or how, how could, well, I'm I'm already hearing you saying, well, here's what works for me. So what worked for you, Sarah? Even. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I had to figure that out. Um, and it took a long time, especially as a new mom, because I'm sure any new parent can relate, but self-care, um, and finding time for yourself is usually not super high on your to-do list. Um, but really it was just, slowly like taking the time. And sometimes I would just spend 10 minutes staring at a wall. And that was the time that I offered myself and experimenting with different things that again, filled my cup, but just little by little and seeing what worked. And there was something about, um, like I wake up at four 30 most days and I spend the first two hours of my morning just doing stuff for me. So I read, I work out, I journal. Um, and that has been really critical to me showing up as a good parent and showing up as a good partner and a good leader, because I have already done the stuff that makes me feel whole. And so as I go about serving others throughout the day, there's no resentment that I'm giving without offering. So I don't look for other people to fill my cup. I just found out how to do it myself. And there's no, again, resentment there either. I'm privileged to know how to take care of myself. And again, it allows me to take care of others with just so much more love because I don't expect anything in return. Hmm. And it comes back to some of those problem solving instincts again, experimenting with different things and figuring out what works or what doesn't work. Um, I mean, there's always that problem solving challenge, whether it's here in the realm of uh, self-care or workplace problem solving of like, we're trying a countermeasure. Is it not working or is it not working yet? Mm-hmm. Like, well, I'm curious your thoughts on like, as, as someone trained as a scientist, like how, how long do we let an experiment play out before drawing too much of a conclusion about the need 
to adjust the approach or even the need to say, hey, let's go back and try something altogether different. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I encourage people that I work with to come up with that on the front end. Like, um, and, and this is something I do with my staff too, is whatever you're solving a problem, we talk about, you know, who are the stakeholders? How do you articulate the problem statement? And what is done? And how do you know? So, you know, sometimes we describe what is done in terms of a project, but also it can be in terms of milestones. So, for example, if we're trying to improve output on a line and we're at 100, we're trying to get to 150, I'm going to say, Mark, what is done? Are you going to hit 150 or, and walk away? Are you going to hit 150 for three weeks sustainably across all three shifts? Are you going to just give the business team the standard work that allows them to hit 150? And again, I don't necessarily care what you say is done, but allows you to set your own trajectory based on how you know that you like to work. I'm, I'm not super detail oriented. It's really hard for me to watch day after day and do like all of that methodical process stabilization. I just know that about myself. So I align with that right up front is done for me is usually I want to offer you that solution. I'm going to walk beside you and make sure you understand how to sustain it. And then because it works for me, I'm going to be done. So it's just, again, in like deciding for yourself what that looks like. Um, and again, setting those little micro milestones so you know that you're winning or losing. Mm. So Sarah, I mean, we're joined again, Sarah Tilkins. She's with uh, GE Healthcare. She has her own company that she launched, the KPI Lab. Um, I'd love to hear the origin story of, of the company and um, you know how, how that came to be. Yeah, um, the origin story is just that I wanted a path to do the work that I love um, in a different, more impactful way and just share myself. So I think on my website, I like have this little quote where I alluded to it earlier, but I've been looking for a place where I fit and it wasn't science and it wasn't construction and then GE, it's better. But I just decided to like build it myself. And so this is the place where I genuinely just get to share all of who I am and what I love with the people who I think that I'm meant to serve. Um, and it's really at its core about using, you know, scientific thinking and lean methodology, but pairing that with talent optimization and pairing that with people development and culture change. Because again, we, we know the tools, but if we're not taking the people with us, our solutions aren't going to sustain. So it's a different approach to doing talent development. But again, I, I train problem solvers. So it's um, it's been so much fun so far. Yeah, well, good. And uh, I'll put, there'll be links in the show notes. Uh, the the KPILab.com um, is, is the website. And um, as, as it spells out on the website, uh, KPI, tell us about the name that KPI stands for two things. The one we might first think of and something else. Yeah. So it stands for key performance indicator, right? Like you've heard me talk today about how important it is to understand the score and if we're winning or losing and also keep people improving. And that's, you know, my homage to you don't know what's right. You just have to stay agile and curious and play. Um, and that's how you get where you're trying to go. And then the lab is, you know, from my 
previous life of being a scientist, but it's where I learned to experiment and I learned to play and where curiosity is almost more important than sometimes generating a result because it's just about discovery. Yeah. Well, and and it seems like that could go hand in hand. The curiosity can lead to better problem solving and better results. as, As you said so well earlier, um, and I, I tried touching on this in um, the mistakes that make us in, in, in that book. There's a difference between being so certain and knowing. Like, I know this is a trap, right? I know the root cause. I know what the countermeasure is. I know it's going to work. And I'm like, oh, like, that's, that's not, it's not always that, that, that cut and dry, yeah. right? To think of more like a scientist of, I have a hypothesis, Let's go test it. I, I love the idea of, you know, a learning. I mean, there's a time and a place for a classroom, but the learning lab, mm-hmm. that seems like a better place to practice and, and learn problem solving. Right. Yeah. And a lot of the templates that we use for problem solving, too, when we're doing root cause analysis, it's, you know, what's the question? Right. Like when you're doing the five why, what's the question? What do you believe is the answer? And then how do you know? And if you can't put something, we actually, it's called like Gemba evidence is the, you know, title of that category. And it's how do you know? And if it is anything less than real data driven results, do not pass go, do not go to the next step. You need to go design an experiment and confirm that hypothesis. Because if you keep walking a root cause analysis based on an idea I mean, interesting, but you have to go make sure that it's real. So I think that's where, you know, again, we talk about root cause, but it's still just experimentation. You're just confirming a hypothesis until you get where you're sure and then turn it on and off, my friend, because that's how you know. (laughs) Yeah, that's one one of the great lessons I learned from working with former Toyota people. Um, There are rare exceptions where, let's say, in hospitals where it wouldn't be ethical to do this. But, you know, you found a countermeasure that seems to address the root cause and have positive impact. There are a lot of settings where, like you said, turn the countermeasure off, see if the problem comes back. Like you're mm-hmm. trying to test the cause and effect relationship. And, and, and sometimes that's complicated and sometimes that's mm-hmm. um, a little a little messy. But yeah, if we found a countermeasure that um, reduced medication errors I would, I, I would say, mm, let's, let's not turn that off. Let's, mm-hmm. let's look for evidence that the progress uh, has, has gone away mm-hmm. and then maybe, Oh, well, maybe there were other factors. I would, you know, but either way we're learning, we're, we're adjusting and, and, and like back to the GE event, you know, they brought in Carol Dweck author mm-hmm. of, of, you know, the really important book mindset. And, you know, it seemed like you, you, you share this, this belief that, uh, problem solving is something we can have a growth mindset about. We're not inherently like, well, I am a good problem solver. I was just born that way. You know, it, that fixed mindset approach probably isn't correct. Tell, tell, you know, tell us more, you know, your thoughts or experiences around um, problem solving as a skill that we can develop. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, a lot of when I train problem solvers, I start with a problem solving mindset. So, you know, without, curiosity and without innovation and sparking some of that, it is really hard to get people interested in solving problems. And that's where, you know, again, I feel like a broken record, but if you, if you can align a person 
with problems that they're passionate about. Again, everyone is curious in their own way. They just might not be curious about everything. So that's where, again, there's this people-centric approach to if you line a person up with the problem that they're uniquely qualified to solve, they will do so. So I think that often when we're failing to solve problems, like, yeah, there's skills and we can teach people, you know, the A3, we can teach people eight step, we can, we can show you how to work a problem statement, but to generate curiosity, to solve a problem, I think that's often a step that we just fail to even look at. And that's where growth mindset comes in. And some of the best problem solvers that I know, you know, we all have personal values and beliefs and lots of people value curiosity. They value finding an answer. So usually those are the people that I find to be the best problem solvers because they're who they are, you know, is actually a a problem solver. They're, They're honoring their own values by showing up in the world and solving problems. And as a highly curious person, hopefully you don't work for somebody who finds curiosity annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Not at all. I mean, my, my boss finds me annoying and loves me, and it's, it's totally fine. <laughs> but it comes back to that question of fit. I wasn't trying to put you on the spot about fit. <laughs> you, you already said it's, it's, it's a lot better for you um, now than it was at previous places. But, um, you know, I, I was, I was, but you know, you're talking about what problem are you trying to solve? When we can kind of talk through this gets maybe a little bit meta. If someone comes to you and says, I want to get better at problem solving, you can turn that into a problem solving scenario. You you're, you're proposing a solution, a countermeasure of getting better at problem solving. What problem are you trying to solve mm-hmm. by getting you know, how would you articulate, you know, if somebody says, Well, like I, I was taught to describe this as a big, vague concern. We're not good at problem solving. Like, well, we have to unpack that. We need to kind of go back and say, well, what, how would, what does that really mean? What is your current state of problem solving? What are the measurable gaps? And you kind of try to unpack like, oh, well, we're not improving quality. Oh, okay. Well now like there, there's a problem to solve through better problem solving. Maybe I'm being annoying talking through it that way. Mm-mm. I don't think so at all. Cause I feel like that's often what we do is we have these lofty, you know, again, I want to be a better better problem solver. And, you know, I might ask, what's important about that? Or what would be the impact of becoming a better problem solver or a better problem solving organization? And if you were a great problem solver, how would you know? So again, it's like, it's first diving into just like, what's your definition of a great problem solver? Because I might measure delivery with this metric and it, it looks like this. And you might measure it a little different. So first you have to like level the playing field to say, and what does that, what does that mean to you? Because how I define being a great problem solver could look really different. So it's just, again, like it's that personalized, I, I, I'm driving myself crazy because I keep coming back here, but it's just that really personalized approach to, um, to you. Like what, what does that mean for you? Because even in organizations, like when we say things like that, you know, that's just the opinion of a leader. We can decide that's true or not, and we can play with it and we can get curious, but just saying something doesn't mean it's true. It's just a statement. <laughs> right. Um, I've heard the statement people will say in an organization, well, we, we don't we don't we don't need problem solving training. We're already great problem solvers. We solve problems all the time. And like, well, okay, how how do we know that to be true? How what's the definition of that? And and the reality could be. Um, 
they're, they're, they're great at jumping to solutions. Mm-hmm. They're not great at evaluating their countermeasure. They might equate problem solving with layering on workarounds. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, it's, it can be an uncomfortable conversation to try to bring someone around to realize I do have opportunities for growth mm-hmm. in terms of my problem solving skills. Um, I've probably made mistakes and not handling that as gently as you need to sometimes. <laughs> you don't want to make someone defensive. You're like, well, you, mm-hmm. you just said I'm a crappy problem solver. I'm like, well, I probably didn't say it that directly. Yeah. <laughs> or just even like what came to mind for me is just asking like, you know, if you could snap your fingers and if you could change something, what would you change? Right. And you might say, oh, that my people show up and they're more passionate about the work they do. Oh, that we were able to hit our customer output. Oh, that we could fix this quality problem. So often if you can, again, like just just change the way that you're asking the question, because developing problem solvers is a how. Right. It can be. So if you can say, well, you know, what would amazing look like or what do you want? And then wouldn't it be great if we could have people help you with that? And so it's just, um, it's again, selling an idea. Mm -hmm. Well, Sarah, uh, it's been great talking to you today. One other question for you about um, the KPI lab. How do you describe your ideal client or coachee? Is it individuals, organizations? Who who do you best work with? Um, So I have been coaching primarily individuals. Um, and most of my clients are executives in the CI lean OpEx space. And I think really, whether you're an individual or an organization, um, what I offer is just ways to think differently. So it's just, um, you know, again, you know how to solve your problems, but sometimes when you're looking in the mirror, you see the same thing. So it's just a different voice, a different type of experience to help you unlock your talent, unlock what's possible, and just think about solving your problems in a different way. And something I offer is um, if it's hard, you might be doing it wrong. <laughs> it just doesn't need to be hard. So um, if you are facing some problem that you just can't figure out on your own, well, maybe it would be more fun with another person. And uh, maybe there's a different path forward. And it would probably be more fun with you, Sarah. So yeah, hopefully people uh, can reach out if they uh, agree with that and reach out to you and you can figure out what problem they're trying to solve and how you can help them uh, figure that out. So again, uh, our guest today, Sarah Tilkins, website um, for her company is thekpilab.com. You can look in the show notes uh, for more about that. So Sarah, thank you for being a guest here. It's been really great having the conversation with you. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. This has been wonderful. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.